So, so picture this. You live in an American city. Everything is run down and semi-deserted. There's this sickness going around and cops are really, really scared and also really, really armed. Um, and people are getting arrested on the street in front of you for nothing and murdered without, you know, any kind of due process. And then if they, if they fight back at all, they're killed. Um, freedom fighters are blowing up checkpoints and trying to liberate the cities and the state keeps calling them terrorists. So in a lot of ways, it's like really, really similar to life in America now, except for the zombies. Right. (laughs) I, I, hopefully we don't have zombies. Oh, I got to be really nice if we didn't have zombies. Also, <laughs> I feel like we can't promise anything. 2020. <laughs> this is Queers at the End of the World, the podcast where you're stuck in a bunker with your plant babies and your fur babies, and you couldn't be fucking happier. I'm your host, Nina. Hey, I'm Nat. And on this episode of Queers at the End of the World, we're talking about the video game The Last of Us, uh, which came out from Naughty Dog Entertainment in 2013. This episode is going to be full of spoilers in every sense of the word. So if you've been waiting until the game is old enough to buy cigarettes or something before you play it, maybe stop here. We'll do our best to avoid any spoilers for The Last of Us 2, which came out in June 2020. Don't worry if you haven't played that one yet. So... Should we do the plot first a little bit? So the plot of The Last of Us, essentially what's going on in the game is there is a fungus called cordyceps that turns humans into zombies. Um, The main character, Joel, loses his 10-year-old daughter, Sarah, early in the outbreak and spends the next 20 years doing terrible things to survive. When we meet him, he's a smuggler in Army Fortified Boston. So at this point, he's got this smuggler partner, Tess. They meet up with Marlene, who's the leader of the Fireflies, which is a sort of liberation movement in this version of Zombieland America. And Marlene asks Tess and Joel to smuggle a kid out of Boston. This kid, Ellie, is 14 years old and a little badass, and she's immune to the zombie fungus. Marlene wants Joel to take Ellie to a hospital where she and a crew of neurosurgeons will use Ellie's immunity to find a cure for all humanity. Joel doesn't give a shit about this or anything, but Tess convinces him before tragically sacrificing herself to the emotional arc of the story and uh, necessity that all heroes be old white men, and Joel goes ahead and guides Ellie. So that's the rest of the game, pretty much. They forge forth across Zombieland America, trying to find the fireflies and save the world. They kill a lot of zombies, but they also kill a lot of other people because this is sort of one of those post-apocalypses where everyone is murderous and rapists and cannibals. And they meet up with Joel's brother, Tommy, who's with the only utopian community around in the ruins of Jackson, Wyoming. And eventually they get to Salt Lake City, Utah, where they find the fireflies. So they're kind of like grabbed up by the fireflies and taken back to the, the headquarters. And I believe Joel is also knocked unconscious by a member of the fireflies. And when he wakes up, he finds himself in a room where um, he sees Marlene and Marlene tells Joel, you know, Ellie's already being prepped for surgery. We're all ready to go to create a vaccine for the infection. But whatever they need to do to, like, extract the resistant magic out of Ellie um, essentially involves taking the infected portion of Ellie's brain out, 
which it will essentially kill Allie. So Joel basically like breaks out of the, you know, supervision of the one guy that's left there to monitor him. Um, at this point, given how many people Joel has like murdered, I it's crazy that they just left one guy. But smart. They're like, how did you get across the country? There are so many people who could have killed you on the way. I'm going to leave this one guy to guard you. <laughs> like, what do you? And then Joel is just like, no problem, you know. <laughs> like guys, like if you had just like kept a little bit more people there, maybe this wouldn't have happened. But Although you, you know, kill a lot of people on your way to get Ellie from the operating room, really a lot. Yes. So of course he he runs to get her out of the operating room you know, murdering people on the way and hopefully hoping he can save her. He breaks into the operating room. She's there on the table under anesthesia. The doctors are in there. Joel shoots the, the brain surgeon and picks Ellie up off the table. And uh, then he murders Marlene when she tries to stop him. In the end, Joel lies to Ellie about what he did, tells her there were others like her and no hope of a cure. And she reluctantly accepts it. They head back to Jackson, ostensibly to, like, be a happy family and care for the last remaining jackalope taxidermy in the world or something. And that's the game. You might be wondering, like, what about the queers? I thought this podcast was about the queers. And you're right. So after the game came out, Neil Druckmann and the rest of the team at Naughty Dog eventually sort of came forward and insisted that Ellie is a gay character. There, I... I think there was a lot of homophobic homophobic commentary about that right so much pushback so many like oh my god you're just imagining these dudes being like but she was my imaginary girlfriend <laughs> oh, seriously the and they're just like listen <laughs> <laughs> she can't be gay because <laughs> reasons yeah <laughs> reasons having to do with my feelings <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. I was so kind of appreciative of Neil Druckmann, like, putting his foot down and being like, no, like, when I designed her, I thought of her as gay. Like, her backstory is a gay backstory. And, like, kind of, which is, again, kind of interesting, like, thinking about temporality and, like, because there's a space of the game where there's nothing that says explicitly that Ellie is gay. She talks about, like, her best friend who died and, like, you know, so somebody was fridged in the past for her. (laughs) Right. But, like, she, um, but it's not explicit. But then there's this sort of, like, time bubble around the game where it kind of depends on how and where you engage with it, where she can be gay for you the whole time because you already know that when you start. The thing that I loved about this game, this is like the classic kind of post-apocalyptic trope, right? Um, And it's kind of mixing two of the most common post-apocalyptic tropes, right? We've got like, on the one hand, zombies, you know, there's like various ways that zombies act as metaphors for like either, you know, the like ravening hordes of humans, like overpopulation is sometimes a thing, or... um, identity breakdown so there's like a lot of really cool queer zombie readings which are like thinking about how instead of being female or male or old or young or any of the other identity categories that we have zombies are just like hungry right (laughs) i i have that identity though all the time i'm constantly hungry (laughs) 
I just don't eat brain. Likewise. Usually not directed at cats and people, but definitely at pastrami. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, so there's like the zombie trope that's definitely going on. And then there's this other trope that we see a lot where there's like this old, angry, sad, drunk, violent white guy who has like lost everything living in this kind of dystopian nightmare and it's not just inside him it's also all around him right there's a police state or whatever and he has to get a girl usually or a child in some cases like if you think of like um Cormac McCarthy's The Road right it's a little boy in that one but he has to get a child across this dystopian post-apocalyptic landscape, usually past some cannibals and, you know, fight some people, kill some people, do some more horrible things. And then in the end, the, the like payoff for his journey is getting to imagine a future, right? Like, and, and that kind of goes to what kids often represent in narratives like this, which is just the idea of a future at all. Which I think goes to, like, the question of, like, what apocalypses even are. Like, what is it that ends when the world ends, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, say more about that, though. Well, like, I think apocalypses, and this is something that has, like, become more a part of the common conversation about them these days. But, like, apocalypses happen all the time. People's worlds are ended in both personal ways through grief and loss that's personal. And also, like, cultures are wiped out. Cities are destroyed people's futures are 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 made impossible by forces outside themselves and i think part of why apocalyptic art is so beloved and necessary is because it reflects that feeling of like that kind of grief over like the loss of the future goes to like how important the idea of the future is to the idea of of what it means to live a life i i think we should definitely talk about the idea of the future in The Last of Us specifically, because, you know, of course, we know what happens at the end. He's shooting uh, at least one of the, the the neuroscientists who's, I assume, planning on extracting her brain. And my, my interpretation of that was like, I don't know that there's another shot right. of them extracting the virus from her brain now that this has been shut down by Joel. And like, so to me, it was sort of like, it's not exactly a story of a future continuing on. It's a story of like a sort of thwarted future. So that for me was what was so exciting about it. Because I think in these, in these stories where there's this white guy who takes this child through the wilderness of the apocalypse and then gets, and then gets to this promise of, of a future. Right. And it could be a, it could be different things. Right. And the road, it's just like the idea of a family that can actually like be stationary. Like, like he like hands his son off to a nuclear family. And then in children of men, it's this like science boat that comes out of the fog and takes the only pregnant woman in the world up to like, Basically, the idea is we're going to figure out how to have literally children again, right? Literally children are the future. So we're going to have children again. And yeah. um, and that one's like a particularly like a couple of queer theorists who I love. Uh, Lee Edelman, who wrote No Future, and Sarah Ahmed, who wrote The Promise of Happiness, have both like looked really closely at children of men and kind of talked about this trope. In The Last of Us, the idea is they're going to be able to reverse engineer a cure. So she's like not pregnant with a child but she's pregnant with like the whole human future 
right? Even though she's this like 14 year old queer kid, she has this like kind of reproductive capacity in the sense of making it possible for human beings to live on um, at all. So like when the game kills her reproductive power, like the power to create this future, I think it, it takes like all of these other narratives made it made like having a baby synonymous with having a future. And this game includes both a child and a future, but it takes it apart. It says like having a child and having a future is not the same thing. Yeah. So to me, that was like this really like queer move to say like, we are going to play through the whole game as this like cis white patriarchal daddy dude. And I, I've like in my, in I like call this trope, like bad dad's trope, right? Because they're, they're like all kind of terrible dudes. They've done horrible things, but fatherhood is like the one thing about them that's like good and pure and right. So this game is like, well, maybe fatherhood can also be selfish and individualistic and prioritize like your own little family unit over everybody else. And to a, to a big extent, I think that's what the game really asks players to, to like grapple with. And especially because it's a first person shooter, they're going through and killing all these people. If it's not for the fantasy of like the human future and saving the world, what is it for? Right. And the like bad dad trope in the, especially in this apocalyptic uh, context is like, you get to be hyper violent and you get to feel like it's justified by the fact that it's an apocalypse and the fact that you're moving in a redemptive direction, which is saving humanity through the preservation of this child by slaughter, repeated and endless slaughter. Um, <laughs> you know, um, endless slaughter. <laughs> but I mean, video games are about that. Like, not killing so much as just um, having something to do. <laughs> right. It's like the act of shooting, like the whole world, the whole future that The Last of Us imagines is kind of engineered around making that verb like the fundamental thing. Yes. And also, I guess you could say garrot in The Last of Us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really true. I, but, you know, one thing, just thinking, thinking more about, like, the idea of the ending as this queer move, and I'm really compelled by that idea, and it, it really it holds a lot of water for me and just sort of articulating why this game has felt so revolutionary to so many people. Um, but I'm curious, like when you were watching it, Nina, like, did you feel like trauma was an aspect of the way you saw the game or did you have a read that was more like, we're in the space of video games where we don't think of killing as real because it's this video game chore that involves clicking buttons. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think one of the most revolutionary things about this game is the way that it tries to drive a little bit of a wedge into 
um, players' ideas of themselves as, as like just doing their jobs, right? Just clicking buttons. Because The Last of Us is notorious for putting players in this position of having empathy with the like pixel people that they're murdering, right? Because you do a lot of sneaking around in the game. You have to like move through these environments where you're hiding. And if you were to come out and just shoot, you would get totally murderfied. So in order to do your own murderification uh, with more alacrity, you just hide and then you jump out and you grab people kind of one at a time. And while you're waiting to grab them, they're having these conversations and they're saying things like, oh, we have to have a town meeting to talk about whether the leadership of this guy that told me to do this is really legitimate. And then you like stab that guy in the neck because you have to move on to the next obstacle. It's almost like the game's requirements of the player are meant to sort of like, to kind of reflect the idea of like survival at any cost, even if it means shutting down empathy. Yeah, yeah. I definitely think that it has that effect. And it's very different from a lot of games that want to get in there and play in the morality space. Because a lot of games that are interested in morality give the player choices. And, um, Last of Us doesn't actually give you options. So there are some areas where it's possible to either sneak or shoot. But as you're saying, it really puts you in situations frequently where you don't have that choice and you do have to kill somebody. Yeah, it's it's like, no, you have to think about violence in video games because we're going to kind of make you do it over and over again. So there's like this... There's a real thing about consent in this game that I think it also is like really not queer in that it takes away player consent in, the, in a very like, like hardline way. Like you cannot choose, like you said, not to kill the brain surgeon. And I know because I watched all of these videos of all of these players trying not to kill the brain surgeon. And they're all just like, they're all just like quelling in misery in the comments. They're like, I tried to shoot him in the legs I tried to shoot him in the feet, but they made me shoot him in the head and I couldn't move on from the area unless I shot him in the head. And it doesn't even give like, so like it makes you press the button, but then you have no choice but to press the button. Yep. There's one part of me that thinks, you know, this locked linear experience that you have of playing this game might be necessary if you imagine you're making a game for like a Gamergate audience and you want to force them to see queer characters and engage with them. You might have to force them to have those relationships because when given the choice, such a player might choose not to see or interact with a queer character if, if they can. I have such a like biased way of interacting with games. I'm like, if you can do gay shit in games, like why would you not? But you know, I'm not uh, like a Gamergate type of viewer. And I think that in, in last of us, like I wondered, you know, this is one side of the two sided coin of like the non-consent. I, I wondered if, you know, there was an intentionality in locking people and forcing them to do, um, certain behaviors and having certain interactions because they wanted people to not be able to look away. And they were like, we're going to put you on this roller coaster. You're going to ride this ride. We want you to 
relate with queer characters. We want you to contemplate the nature of violence. And to do that, we're going to completely remove all of your agency and consent and force you to do something that's really uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, it definitely feels that way to me. I think, I mean, even stuff like, you know, kind of setting up these different versions of patriarchy and toxic masculinity. Like, I think the game has has quite a lot of self-reflection around that. Like, one of my favorite scenes in the game is when they're in Colorado and Joel gets injured and Ellie hides him while he's recovering and she's going out and hunting for food. She gets uh, snatched up by this other group of survivors. The leader of that group is this like guy who guy named David who keeps telling Ellie that he's going to take care of her and she's special. And one of the things I love about that scene is there's just no question for me watching it that Ellie knows what he is from the first second he tells her she's special. He like, it's like, it's a, it's a cut scene. He says, you're special. He puts his hand on her hand and she goes, Oh, and it's like, she knows this guy is a total predator. One of my favorite things about that scene is you know, in the kind of big boss fight between Ellie and David, this pedophilic leader of the cannibal survivor group, um, he's kind of walking through this like enclosed space and they're like circling each other. And he keeps saying stuff like about how um, she's testing his faith and, uh, and like how he can take care of her. And they, uh, there's this banner on the wall behind him that says, for when we are in need, he shall provide. So the, I think there's this sort of subtext of David as like, imagining himself as this like Christian patriarch who provides for the people. And there's like that kind of bad dad who thinks, who sees himself as a provider and a caretaker, but is actually a predator. And then that's kind of juxtaposed with Joel as like, actually loving Ellie and not just like trying to eat her fundamentally. Yeah. I, I, that whole scene was just like one of those moments in games where you're like, you know, you interrogate your own reaction to violence because there's certainly something satisfying when she finally ends up murdering David because he's been cast as such a demon. And at the same time, like the way she murders him is like incredibly brutal and bloody and, You know, it's like Ellie is a really, really um, competent person and she's increasingly learning how to do do violence and be violent throughout the game, learning this from Joel. And then that's like this this peak moment where she just absolutely lets loose on on basically on his body, because my impression is that she kills him and she continues hacking at him with a machete after he's dead. And it's like. You know, then I got it. I got into like my trauma take on that too, where I'm just like, you know, she's learning from Joel how to be numb to violence, and she isn't actually numb in that moment because, like, right after that, she has kind of a breakdown, and Joel shows up and comforts her, um, which is also a really interesting moment in terms of the like dad um, role that Joel is playing throughout the game. Yeah, no, it does really make you interrogate the way that you feel about it because it is really like triumphant, right? And for me, like my low bar for the way that video game developers are going to see a happy ending for this scene was expecting Joel to come in and save her. So for me, the fact that she's the one that ends this for herself 
um, by hacking him to pieces with a machete is like, I'm like excited by that. You know, I'm like happy that it's her and not Joel, but then you're right. It's like the, the like positive outcome of this relationship ends up being not like the happy future where she gets to be a kid, but the future where she becomes as competent a killer as he is. Yeah. It's almost like her, her route to coming into herself is by becoming a video game character, which is this like cold, competent killer. And it's like, if you want to get really meta about it, that's like this catalyzing moment when she finally fights a boss, which is something video game characters do. And then the original video game player character protagonist, Joel finally shows up and is like, you know, now we get to have an emotional, a moment of emotional connection now that you've, you know, you've essentially like come to inhabit front and center in this narrative. This narrative is entirely set in this frame where to be in the center of it means that you are um, the tool by which the player interacts. And therefore, the only possible way you could be a protagonist is to be this cold-blooded killer and congratulations like in some ways now you've become that and it's like it is triumphant because like I think one of the the most powerful experiences and in that game is when you stop being Joel and you start being Ellie Ellie has one of the interesting mechanics in the game is Ellie has a knife and Joel has shivs and the shivs disintegrate after a certain number of uses so you constantly have to be constructing shivs to do close range attacks and and then like later in the game you end up as ellie and she has this knife that never disintegrates and you're like oh damn ellie's awesome you know like and it's just this moment of being like oh yes i finally get to be here you know she's growing up she's becoming central to the narrative i don't have to be this like I forget what you called Joel, Nina, but it was like cis straight daddy dude or something like, you know, and you're just like, thank God I don't have to be him anymore. But then like what Ellie becomes is this tool of the player. You know what I mean? And like, I think that's where I start to be like, like, oh my God, like, you know, she's being hollowed out and I'm stepping into her as this harbinger of the inevitable violence that you commit because you need to have something to do in video games. And this is a video game about survival and death and killing and shooting. Yeah, it's like it's like the game. It's like if it's like there's these parameters for the world and the parameters for the world are you have to kill in order to live. And so, like, if you want to be a person like a person who has agency and makes choices, then your agency and your choices are defined by the parameters of the game. So if you want to be a person, you have to be a killer. Yep. Yeah. Is like, yeah, that's definitely what I'm getting at here. And you know, that's what makes video games interesting. Like, of course we could be like, well, what if, you know, what if Joel and Allie just never killed anybody? (laughs) And we would be like, well, what would that be like? And, um, there's a whole like genre or sensibility in games called cozy games. Um, and we know what those games are, right? Like we talked about Animal Crossing, Stardew Valley, 
there are games like that, but those also don't have morality in them in the same way that we're talking yeah. about here. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know what it makes me, it makes me feel like this whole thing, like this whole wrapping consciousness that like is unfolding the kinds, the ways that video games do choice and agency and morality. It's like this like strangled scream of like the like patriarchal white supremacist conscience being like I don't want to do this anymore and I don't know how because I refuse to talk to anybody else about what the world could be like and this is the only thing I can think of and I hate it (laughs) I think that's a great take Nina and I agree with it 100% I like I honestly think that some of the games that I am the most interested in are really really fascinating and beautiful expressions of that very thing. But The Last of Us is is a AAA game where you're sitting with this predetermined set of genre conventions and regardless of how deep and sensitive you get in the writing because there is this genre convention that involves giving the player something to do and that thing being shooting, it has an inevitable consequence in the way you understand who the characters are and who they're becoming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That's, that's so right on and interesting. Yeah. And then like the scene ends. Um, <laughs> the like last shot in that section of the game is just like the bloody phallic handle of the knife (laughs) as the like the lodges are burning down and you don't see david's body but you see the knife handle sticking out of it and there's like like the 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 rug i noticed this like on my like on my last playthrough the the rug has these lone star patterns on them oh my gosh so it's like this like lone star this like rugged individual symbol and then there's just this like phallic knife sticking out (laughs) and that like encapsulates the last of us for me and my reaction to it because it's like I can't tell whether the knife is like sticking into the Lone Star ideology or whether it's just like doubling down like phallus Lone Star it's sticking into or sticking out of the Lone Star (laughs) ideology right (laughs) it really is that way you know I feel like that's a perfect metaphor for this because like Every everything we're talking about here and a lot of how I thought about it has that vibe of like, you know, on the one hand, it's it's cutting it up. And on the other hand, it's reinforcing it. And I, I can't get a read on how I feel about it totally. Um, I do have very strong opinions, though, about how it feels to play the game. Totally. So my interaction with this game was like even less consensual than most of the players because I was watching the choices that were made by um, the folks who were doing, who were making the let's play. So what was it like to actually hold the controller, Nat? So I think a lot about this. Um, As I mentioned at the beginning, I am a nerd. (laughs) And one of the things I think about is related with what you said about your experience of video games as a kid which is that um, if you're socialized female, you may not have the level of skill that emanates from starting to play games when you're really young. Yeah, right. And of course, there's there's a bunch of other intersecting things going on, like having the TV and having the consoles and, you know, because 
when we're saying that and I'm thinking about like my position in my family pecking order as not getting the controller, that also makes me think of like, if you're a person who has to go over to someone else's house in order to play a video game because you don't have access to a console of your own, you're probably also in that situation having to be sort of like second in line for the controller all the time. Yeah, I mean, I I think about that a lot when I think about difficulty in video games. It really, of course, it's individual and specific to the person. But, you know, by and large, I know a lot of queers who would not say I am a person that's good at video games. And that doesn't mean they don't play them and enjoy many video games. But what that really means is there is a certain type of video game experience that is challenging for people who have not practiced it. Well, because I can't even imagine playing this game like with my skill level and having any fun at all. Because I feel like I would just die constantly and it would take me like, until I was like a wise old queer elder. Yeah. Before before I was able to like get to the second location. <laughs> it probably would. I mean, <laughs> like it's a very hard game. And I that was the thing I was gonna say is like I feel like, you know, it has these certain themes to it that are queer, but I don't feel like it's a game for queer players. And part of that is the lack of consent and meaningful choice in how you navigate the game. And the other part of it is simply that there's difficulty in the game and the difficulty isn't a compelling loop of gameplay. Um, What do you mean by that? So what I mean by that is there are games that understand themselves to be difficult and they make engaging with their difficulty compelling. So I would give uh, an example of a recent game that is absolutely beloved by people who don't consider themselves or didn't consider themselves as quote unquote gamers, which as a side note, I think, you know, most of the folks listening here can probably implicitly understand that like when gamer is said, what is culturally implied there is, cis straight white players who play these kinds of violent games not people that play video games generally right so gamer as in gamergate not gamer as in i play play games games, right because like you know i i play video games but like i feel like saying i'm a gamer is a really fraught concept right Um, it's like me being like i'm a bro right it absolutely is or like Maybe more specifically, like, it would be like saying I'm a programmer. <laughs> you know what that is? <laughs> I mean, I put it together. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, that's a thing that I am not, you know? Um, like, no matter how many backwards baseball caps you put on, and no matter how many, like... <laughs> I don't know how many Mountain Dews you drink. You'll never be a programmer, bro. I know. And despite the fact that I do wear my baseball cap backwards at times, like, I think <laughs> it's it's not going to work out for me. <laughs> well, and also, like, just, just practically speaking, like, as somebody that's, like, extremely genderqueer and also an extreme nerd, you know, I can certify that no matter how long you spend in those spaces, there's a sense that you don't totally belong. You know, I'm always like thinking like, who is this game for? 
um, and what were the design choices that went into it. And one of the things that is a huge element of the design choices you make when you build a video game is did the person, did your audience play games when they were young? And do they have this certain level of skill that will bring them into the game in a way that doesn't feel impossible? I don't think it's a game that's for queer players because it's a really challenging game. And the difficulty of the game didn't contribute to its storytelling, which was my main complaint with it. Because I've played games where the difficulty of the game does contribute to the storytelling and the game imp implicates you in contemplating your own villainy and violence. So I've had play experiences that do a lot of the same things that The Last of Us does, but the realizations happen to you rather than before you as a cutscene. Like this sort of like didactic... Um, yes. That there's this sort of moral arc that's really explicit. It's very, it's a very explicit moral arc and it's a very um, traditional type of storytelling that happens in this game. Um, you have cutscenes, you have a single narrative arc with no possibility of influencing outcomes. And really a lot of what you're doing when you do the gameplay is you're simply moving forward towards that next cutscene. Yeah. And when you say traditional, I guess that makes me think like traditional to what, right? Like, I guess that sounds to me like it's traditional to novels, it's traditional to movies, but it's not really traditional to video games. I would say it isn't. And there is a fair amount of debate about this in the community that studies and talks about video games and games generally about the overlaps between quote-unquote traditional storytelling media like film and literature and games, and different people have different takes. But I, as a player, personally prefer games that give you a little bit more choice and control and opportunity for expression and don't essentially act like movies where occasionally like you have to push a button so that Joel will like pull a garage door up, you know, like... One of the most thing, uh, insulting aspects of the gameplay in The Last of Us is it's like, you you know, you're in this room and it's like press square to open the door. And it's not just like one button push. It's like, you know, you're like holding down on it so that Joel will like ratchet up this garage door as though you're doing something. I'm like, I'm not doing anything. I'm watching a movie of Joel lifting this door up right now. And I have to do it like 200 times. Because <laughs> there are just so many garages in the end time. I know. So many garages. And, you know, for me, like for me to get through The Last of Us, I, like you were saying, I would have to play some encounters over and over again. And the, the experience, I, I was thinking about this a little bit, the experience of playing it reminded me a little bit of, um, like if you've ever been... I don't know if you've ever been to like a haunted house, like a, a big production, like Halloween haunt. Um, I actually worked in a haunted ha house once. What? Yeah, for only for one night. It was like one of those moments when you like realize your gender feelings. I was actually, incidentally, I went to this haunted house where I was transformed into um, an, a zombie and given like a men's like a uh, prison guard outfit. And I was living. Like, I was so happy. 
what so, way to identify your like trans non-binary gender feelings than by embodying a zombie <laughs> in a uniform <laughs> i know i mean like there was something about like I, you you know you were saying that there is this like queer aspect to zombies and you know i have lived that out in a haunted house <laughs> like i felt like really queer and it was great Anyway, my uh, the thing I was going to say about haunted houses is the way most rooms in haunted houses work is they shine a light on something that is an installation, like a skull with like crackling lights or a, a coffin that pops open. And then in the other dark corner, there's a real person standing there to jump out and scare you. So you enter a room, you see the thing, your eyes like you know, adjust to the light so you can't see in the dark. And then someone is like, ah! And, like, once you know that, you can actually, like, look for people in the dark corner as you go through one of these installations. And the ex- playing The Last of Us when you're not good at it is, like, going through a haunted house where in every room there's, like, a small button on the back of between the shoulder blades of like the, the real life scarer that you have to push and being kind of slow and clumsy and just having to play through the same room over and over again, knowing exactly what the scare is, knowing exactly the layout of the room and just not being able to hit that button. Oh my God. It's hell because you're like, I know what this is trying to say. I know what the POV is. I know what I'm supposed to do. I just can't do it. And the lack of recognition of the game of failure and some of the other queer themes that we see talked about and occurring in games like, you know, we talked a little bit about non-normative time as opposed to normative time or chrononormativity some games play with time in really interesting ways and resist this sort of heteronormative notion of time progressing only in one at one pace and according to one particular trajectory how can time be queer or not queer so (laughs) i wanted to talk about this through an example and uh I'll go off on a tangent for a little bit and then we'll loop it back around. But I wanted to talk a little bit about Souls games, which I think, you know, folks listening to this may not be as familiar with these games as, um, you know, the the gamer, which if, if you're a gamer, there are a pretty well-known series of titles that are extremely difficult video games. And the storytelling and what the game does is inherently situated in the notion that you will die and respawn over and over again and who you are is dictated by constant failure in the game the original game in the soul series is dark souls and in dark souls you're this like undead like skeleton basically and you're like trying and trying to progress in this like kind of like purgatorial weird like place and you kill people and do the the work of video games and inevitably die and the game is built and optimized and balanced around dying and respawning 
it's not a heavily narrative game with cutscenes and so forth. And I don't know that there's any like explicitly queer representation in Dark Souls, but to me, it feels queer because there is a sense of building failure in as the fundamental process of how you interact with this, the the game space. There's actually like a a, a meme on the internet uh, or or a phrase which is "get good." I don't know if you've ever heard the term "get good." No, it's "get good." Get good is what people say when they're fighting a hard boss in Dark Souls. People posting on the internet, like, I can't beat this boss. Oh my gosh, it's impossible. There's just no way. I'm doing something wrong. How do I optimize my character? And then, like, the response is, get good, <laughs> which is essentially that, it, you know, if you really want to beat a boss, you're going to have to work really hard and die over and over again and repeatedly fail and repeatedly improve your skills. And just through sheer work and grinding, you will beat a boss in Dark Souls. Oh my god, I love that. Because it's not like, it's not like, be good. It's not like, be good at games, and then you can beat the boss. It's like, get good in the game. Yes, and it's actually a very leveling game. Like, even if you have that set of skills that we talked about of like, you know, you're socialized male, you get this sort of set of resources of sitting down with your friends and getting input to play video games, and you get those skills when you're young you still have to get good in Dark Souls. Nobody can enter in and beat that game right away. Um, And I think, you know, in Dark Souls specifically, like the unending chore. So one of the things that happens in Dark Souls, when you die, all of the enemies that you've murdered respawn every time you die. So (laughs) to get back to a boss in a game like that, you have to... um, fight through this whole set of enemies that's in the approach to the boss. And even after you kill the boss, if you leave that area and come back, those enemies have respawned again. And it's like a really interesting meditation on the pointlessness of the chore of violence. Mm. And, you know, you're very implicated in being the person that's sitting down to do this chore of repeatedly killing, repeatedly killing. And the game is like, oh, you know, have you noticed that I can just endlessly generate enemies for you to kill for the rest of your life if you keep playing me? Right. And, you know, and it's 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 a little bit more available in, in my read on that game of like understanding how weird and pointless this is that you're doing this. That's that like makes a really clear parallel with The Last of Us because that game is actually notorious for its like game save function, which um, is really, really like it's really generous. Basically, you can you can kind of uh, stop and start wherever in the game. And so um, as I understand it, and so like it kind of it's like a support for that for that difficulty level um, where you can still maintain your narrative progress. And like you said, like the, like if this is a game where the goal is to kind of get to the next cutscene, it, it sort of reduces the frustration of its difficulty by making it possible to progress on this line, which just emphasizes how much this game really is like a line. Like there's a, there's a character development, there's these characters we meet at the beginning and by the end of the story, they're different and they make this set of choices that the game has delineated for you that you don't make, the game makes. And like, like that makes this game straight. Literally straight. Like it's a straight line that you travel from the beginning to the end of the game. Yes, yes. 
Well, just like that there's something about that that's like, what are our investments in survival, right? Like, like it's like that kind of straightness has to do with the assumption that the whole point is to keep living. Oh, yeah, exactly. And not to fail, you know? Like, I think one of the the points I was trying to make there is that in a game like Dark Souls, failure is something that you can do as a form of self-expression. You know, caveat that you, you have to fail repeatedly in that game, but failure is something you can do as part of an experimentation with a space. So it's like you have to fail, but you can do it any way you like. Yes, you have to fail there isn't an assumption that success is right and failure is wrong because failure is so much a part of the game. Um, And like what I'm saying is like when I play games, sometimes I intentionally fail just so I can investigate one aspect of a challenging area. You know, I'll run up. I'm like, I'm not going to beat this, but I'm going to just try to jump over here and see what happens. And there are some games where the, the reality of the game is like, I expect you to do that. And there are some games where, if you do that, the game is like you screwed up. And Last of Us very much has the latter quality. And, and the reason it has that quality is because you constantly feel this pressure that you want to see the next cutscene and get to the next part of the story. So if you fail, you're just prolonging the amount of time that you're going to have to wait to see the next step in Joel and Ellie's developing relationship. That's it. You know, and. I mean, that reminds me, like, of the idea of, like, the queer art of failure, right? Which is this sort of way of, of, like, phrasing it that Jack Halberstam has where, like, failing at things is a part of queer identity, right? Because, like, if the story of of life is supposed to be, like, be straight, have babies, and keep a job, and, and whatever, queer lives that don't conform to that are, like, characterized according to the to the normal normal narrative as failures but but failure is queer right so it sounds like failure is like a big part of your queer experience of this game yes and the game is not interested in my failure as part of what is the narrative so that's like part of how you know that the game doesn't yes absolutely and they're, they're like, I couldn't, that's a really good way of saying it because, you know, there's representation and then there's being seen by a game. Well, I, you know, that makes me think about like, like how our investments in what the game is grappling with are different because of what we're bringing to it in terms of like identity and our needs for like what a life is for. I mean, I think that's part of why this game is such a like magnet in that way, because my sense because of the way that the game over and over again kind of privileges like the importance of interpersonal relationships as like fundamentally that's what we live for right we have the characters of Sam and Henry and they're these like two black men who like bring this brother relationship into the game and are like also competent survivors and we finally meet a group of people that we don't want to kill and don't have to kill and there's this mutuality to it and then Sam gets bitten by a zombie and Henry kills himself because that 
is all he's living for, right? Like this interpersonal relationship. And that's like the stakes. The game is like, if you lose your person that you care about, you have to die. Well, there's one other option of what can happen to you if you lose the person that you care about. And that is that you turn into Joel. Mm -hmm. Because he lost his daughter and then he becomes... um, I keep wanting to call him a murder hobo. Um, but Yeah, murder hobo is precisely right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that Joel is seen to be enough of a problematic influence on the world he lives in that that is shown to be a really kind of scary option of what can happen to you if you lose track. Uh, right. So, so the game kind of offers you either you can you can die like Henry when you lose the object that you live for or you can live and be hollowed out like Joel. And then I think Marlene is the third option. Mm. Marlene is the leader of the terrorist organization, the fireflies and her grappling with the fact that Ellie has to die for this cure is like, there's a, there's an aspect of like the, the, the game shows her grief. Like you can also lose everyone you love over and over again and continually mourn them and, keep going like with this purpose in mind and you know people talk about this brain surgeon and like yes it is probably really hard to find a neurosurgeon capable of like doing the surgery who also like knows about vaccines and like this guy is like probably one of a kind in Zombieland America but Marlene is also one of a kind like she is clearly this incredible like activist general She's not a psychopath and she's been running this multi-year freedom fighter campaign, gotten herself all the way across the country, set up this like surgery in an abandoned hospital. Like she, like she is also completely irreplaceable. Yeah. Yeah, that's really true. And I, I feel like that lends even more trauma and devastation to the moment when Joel sort of as a representative of the world of the game is uh, that moment when he murders her kind of says like, listen, that the only type out of those three types that can persist and survive in this world is the hollow Joel type. Yeah. And it's definitely notable that of these three kind of models for, for trying to survive, um, the two that die in the game are both black characters and they're both kind of representing these alternate models of like kinship and taking care and like what it means, um, like what it means to build a future, right? Because, um, because Henry and Sam are brothers, not a father and son. And because, um, Marlene is really kind of taking like the whole world in terms of like her sphere of care extends to everyone as opposed to Joel, whose sphere of care extends only to those he considers his family. And um, yeah, and it's like really notable that the game sort of says that if one of these can survive, like you're saying, then it's going to be this like murderous white guy and not these two black people who are presenting these alternative models of kinship, um, which is definitely pretty terrifying. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was really interesting reading. Um, I think we 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 were looking at a, a, a an article that brought a critical race theory lens to Last of Us. And there was some really interesting commentary there about the Black characters in the game falling into predictable um, character trajectories um, for the kinds of Black side characters you typically see. Um, and just thinking about, you know, there's a punishment for being queer in the game, you know, along those same lines. And I'm quoting from the article here, all of the Black characters die. Yeah. So it's this book chapter, Dystopian Blackness and the Limits of Racial Empathy in The Walking Dead and The Last of Us. Um, and it's in this book, Gaming Representation, Race, Gender and Sexuality in Video Games, which is so full of amazing essays if you are interested in that kind of thing. But anyway, it's by Trey Andrea M. Russworm. And yeah, so so she talks about like the black body as like the location of suffering in this white supremacist imagination. Yep. And one of the things they said in there was that the black characters in the game are not really aware of their own blackness. Like it's not acknowledged or discussed or really a meaningful part of their character arcs. And I was just like, that's so weird, you know, but in a way it's not weird because, you know, white supremacy is like, oh, you know, whiteness is normal. And so we live in a post-racial reality and da, 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 da. And it's like, right. You think about that in that context and you're like, how in a world, you know, especially thinking about like the COVID era where the onset of a plague means inequalities are exacerbated and racial tensions are just shown to be like this incredible problem when we start to have a suffering and struggle on this level. People are way, way more aware of race in this era, explicitly talking about it. And so it's insane to imagine an apocalyptic world where they just like don't mention blackness. They're like, we have black characters, but like, we're not going to really talk about the black experience. Similar to like, we have queer characters, but like, well, you can engage with it or you cannot. And that is a type of erasure and making that experience invisible where it's sort of like left to the person watching it to kind of read that in there. Yeah. There is a world where the characters just say things about being gay or things about being black, which if you're gay or black, those are things that you do say all of the time. Right. Yeah. And you sometimes make entire podcasts about them. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. But um. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So if The Last of Us is this like straight narrative game where um, you're just like trying to progress to the next cutscene, and that kind of parallels the fact that they're on this journey, right? The point is they're supposed to get to the Firefly Lab so that Ellie can get, um, can, can be tested and they can find the cure then, you know, they, that like those two journeys mimic each other, right? They're each in a straight line toward an end goal. But when the game actually gets you to that end goal, instead of cure, finding the cure and having the end of, you know, having like finding the cure and saving the world, it just undoes everything that you have just spent the entire game doing. So how does that, like, how does the like total abandonment of the whole goal of the game at the end of the game, like 
how does that interact with the idea that this is like straight, um, like a straight narrative? Yeah. I mean, one thing I have to say is I did stop playing it after maybe three or four hours of gameplay. And I feel like if I had gone through and tried really hard to beat the whole game and then gotten to the end of it and it was like, you know, and it was all for nothing, I would just be like, well, that's typical of this game. You know, it made me do all this pointless stuff between the cutscenes, and then it invalidates all the work I put into getting good at this mechanic that doesn't really translate into other games or have any meaning other than perpetuating the story. So I don't know, like, I guess as a player, I would have been unsurprised and also just sort of vaguely pissed off, like, well, you know, you put me through hell and now you're telling me it was all for naught. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, which, which again, very much like the straight expectations for how you're going to live a life. <laughs> there you go. Oh my gosh. Ludonarrative harmony is what we call that. <laughs> you work your ass off so that you can get to the end point and we'll just move the goalpost. Why don't we? Oh my gosh, it's true. <laughs> All right, I have a newfound respect for The Last of Us now on this take. (laughs) Well, so I feel like the one thing that we get to have for The Last of Us, especially like in this space of this podcast where we're just talking about The Last of Us, one, like let's just pretend The Last of Us 2 doesn't exist because The Last of Us 1 was originally imagined as a standalone game, but then it was so popular and there were so many awards and they ended up making another one. But if we just take it as that standalone, imagining they're on their way back to Jackson, like this thing has just happened. It's very bad. (laughs) Joel has just lied to Ellie and they're going back into Jackson. Like what is the like most beautiful queer future that you could imagine happening from this point? Okay. Of course, my immediate thing is like, she's so traumatized and hollow. You know, what is there for her to do? But Let's not be pessimistic about that. I, you know, what my thoughts go to are Ellie doing research about whether or not it's possible for there to be a cure. I don't know if down the end of that like thought pathway that would lead to eventually her sacrificing herself to have her brain be operated on by someone else later. Like, you know, them reconstructing the surgery place and going back there, what? But like, my baseline thing about her is she has to have some kind of relationship with that because she's not just going to throw away the fact that she has this. Um, but then I-, I can see one aspect of her having individuality and self-efficaciousness and like, having the ability to willingly sacrifice herself in order to be the cure for humanity. But I don't Mm -hmm. know that that exactly fits into what I would think of as like the most beautiful queer future for Ellie and for the rest of the community that she's existing in. So do you have any ideas? What, what was in your mind at the end of the game? Yeah, um, for sure. Like, first of all, that the end of the game is, like, really weird, right? Because because Joel doesn't know that Ellie is gay, right? So so he, he thinks he's just, like, cleanly replaced one daughter with another. 
Like, he actually is, like, engaging in some time travel, right? Like, he's now all of a sudden back in some alternate history of the crisis where, like, Sarah never died. But what he says to her, which always has, like, really delighted me, is he's like, she would have liked you. I think you would really have liked her. He says to he says to Ellie, because he's, like, trying to, like, you know, merge them into one being. Right. You know, so, like, there's one version, I feel like, of the game where, like, Ellie and Sarah become, like, ghost-human cross-dimensional lovers. <laughs> you know, and then they're, like, and then they're, like, immune for different reasons, because one of them's incorporeal and the other one can't be bitten. <laughs> so there's that possibility. And then I feel like, kind of in the world of the game, where there's no, there's no ghost daughters... So it sets up this kind of classic sort of 21st century, very familiar dad has this idea of a future for his daughter and he's placed all these hopes on it and he's done all these things, like some of them really terrible, kind of based on his idea of who she is. So like to me, it would just like be pretty revolutionary or anyway, pretty disruptive for her to just not accept Mm -hmm. that. Like, I think my ideal, like, I don't know what everything her life would contain would be, but, but like, it would be kind of a utopian step for me just for her to, for it, for her to defy the image of her that he saved. Mm-hmm. For her to, like, be queer and be out and not be a murderer, <laughs> you know? You know, not just like step into the into the role of patriarch that he's prepared for her. Yeah. Um, or you know, matriarch or patriarch, like the the game kind of it doesn't really think through the options that are available now. Right. You know, she could be so many other things than like a family member in in Jackson, and for her to to recognize among her gifts is this ability to like continue to be having fun while living through this traumatic experience. Right. Like she keeps like, we have that recurring scene where they're like up on the top of the building, looking out over the ruins of civilization. And she's like, what a beautiful view, you know? And like the ability to build relationships with people in spite of being so traumatized. And like, those are her gifts, you know, it could just be about like, well, not, not this. Not like your daughter, I'm a mommy, like let's reproduce and go back to and be nostalgic for. Like that's my ideal. Where she just like basically I'm imagining that she like goes off and starts like a queer commune. There we go. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. I yeah, I mean, I think I have like I think I have like a darker take on it because I get pulled into the the side of it where like it's hard for me to believe that she would be able to continue to have intimate connections with people by the end of the game. Like during the game, I see her doing it. But then when you get to the end of the game, my read of her is that she's almost completed the process of being like hollowed out by the trauma and violence and all of the stuff that she's been through by that point. And so I guess if she were to like find a new normal, it would be 
some form of activity where she could like use the fact that she's been rewired for threat and danger that is community building for her. So for her not to become an assassin, like Joel's assassin smuggling sidekick, but to be somehow otherwise efficacious, like, you know, what if she stepped into a role that was similar to Marlene? Mm -hmm. And also she would be able to make good the fact that Joel, like, really really damaged the the fireflies like if she was able to go back and like be the leader of a group like that she would be like well i can do healing of this thing that happened i think she still would have to find out though like it's somehow like important to me that she finds out that he lied because her agency doesn't exist as long as it's smoke and mirrors around what happened when she was anesthetized. Like I really want her to have control over the story and to be able to be like, either she murders Joel because she's also like a crazy, like cold hearted murderous person, or there's like a utopian moment where she is able to make a decision that murdering him would continue the cycle of violence that he started. And that gives her the ability to transcend out of her role as a total murderer and become a leader. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's, yeah. Like what if she finds out about what Joel did and then she realizes like, Oh, this whole thing is predicated on a lie. Like I'm not your daughter. I'm not your, like, or anyway, I'm not your mini-me. You set up this world in which it was okay for you to do this thing, and then you did it, and I didn't get a choice. Basically, just, like, I refuse this inheritance, you know? Like, you can't just, like, give this to me and make me hold it. You lied. Fundamentally, there's nothing underneath it. Yeah. I mean, or or it doesn't even have to be, like, nothing underneath it. I, I feel like where is the future where Ellie can like recognize that, that like their relationship matters and he doesn't control like his choices don't control what she gets to do with her life. Right. So like, I guess I see, like I see the appeal of like taking up the firefly mantle, but I also kind of feel like that's another, that could, you could see also see that as another way of like, choosing between your inheritances from your mom or your dad or like from you know like like these are the things that have been done before and this is what I'm going to choose from and I just I also want to open it up that like Ellie could like make cordyceps art (laughs) like she could be a zombie installation artist and um create navigable installations where you go through in a gas mask and and you know view different different uh, formulations of cordyceps on the walls that are making commentaries on survival in, in this world. Certainly. I mean, (laughs) like, I just love that the idea, the idea that that's there somewhere in that compound, like, (laughs) um, it does make me think too, that like she could, I mean, the fact that they, she can't get cordyceps means she can get more near zombies than everybody else. Right. And so it makes you also think through like, you know, her role in society as someone that has the ability to be near zombies could relate with an effort to 
get more information about them, study them. She could be part of an intellectual tradition of studying zombies and play a unique role in it. Like, I feel like that's, I feel like that's really important too, that she can get near the zombies. Like she also, one of the things I get points, I think the game kind of subtly makes throughout is that the fact like zombie games are forever having that moment where somebody gets bitten and then they sacrifice themselves by shooting themselves or like they're like telling their friends to shoot them. And, and like that moment would have made it impossible for Ellie to exist. Right. So there is something kind of like, kind of like queer liberation in that, like, you can get bitten by this thing where everybody turns into something monstrous and you can just be like, maybe I'm not going to be a monster. And so I feel like Ellie's experience of that, like, like there's an opportunity there too, because she has this knowledge about possibility. I know I can really see her like trying to, trying to find or finding another person who has also survived um, a bite, you know? I would love to see a sequel about that. Well, in the meantime, we will just leave Ellie where we have collectively brought her in the beautiful regenerated world of zombie-human interaction and cordyceps art. That's right, yes. For the second part of this month's episode, we're so excited to get to talk to Professor Treya Andrea Russworm, whose article Dystopian Blackness really informed our conversation about The Last of Us on this episode. Turns out Professor Russworm teaches an entire semester on dystopian media, and she also happens to be dapper AF. Our conversation with her will be up around the middle of November, so follow us on Instagram or subscribe to the podcast on Apple to get updated when part two of this episode is available. This has been Queers at the End of the World. Our show art is by the fabulous Ellie Yanagasawa, who you can find for your own commission at Ellie the Cosmic Jelly. The music for this episode was La Fin des Ericots by Tintamare. You can find us at queerworlds.com or at queerworlds podcast on Instagram. If you enjoyed the show, we would really, really appreciate it if you'd rate and review us. It helps people find us, and it lets us know that you're out there listening. And tell a friend who you think will enjoy it. That's by far the best way for folks to find out about the podcast. Part of the point of all this is for us to talk to our community, so we'd love to hear back from you. If you're a queer person making apocalyptic and dystopian media, and you have something you'd like us to read, watch, play, or listen to, or you just have a great idea for a topic we should cover on the show, get in touch with us at queerworldspodcast at gmail.com. All right. Good luck out there, dear hearts.